welcome to Masters of Divinity. I am your moderator, JP, and I am here with Father Chuck. Hey, what's happening, dude? Hey, man. And uh, we have a, a, a guest today who's, who's uh, showing up, uh, who, who I, I guess you could say this is sort of like a, like a long-time caller or a long-time listener, first-time caller situation, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want to introduce uh, our guest, Chuck? Yes. So the, our guest is, uh, is, is tangentially known to us, uh, known to our listeners, because um, Father Fun has been on the podcast a few times, and this is his, uh, his better half, his partner, his significant other. Um, she, is also the, she is also responsible for the very first review of our podcast that was ever left on iTunes, and it was, I've heard better, four stars. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Funston. Hello. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for, for joining our podcast today. Thank you for having me. And and thank you for the review. I, and I mean that. I mean. Oh, that. good. <laughs> it, it makes me it makes me think a little bit. She before we came over before we started this. She was, this was one of the things she was talking about. Is she was like, I just remembered I left this review. I was like, Oh yeah, I was totally going to bring it up in the episode. <laughs> and um, it reminds me of something that the head of my head of school said to me. And I may have said this on the podcast before. But he recently said to me after um, one of after my like my first chapel of the school year, he 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 said if I had to give your chapel a grade, it would be a B plus A minus. And I was sort of like, ooh, <laughs> like what did I do? And he said, he said, but that's what you want. He says because if everything you do is always A plus, you have nowhere to go but down. But B plus A minus gives you an area of improvement. So that's where you want to be. That's true, and I have to agree. I mean, and I have to agree with you, Michael. When we first started. Four stars was actually very generous. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. I mean, I'm glad you think so. I, I think I didn't really understand how important uh, those kinds of reviews were when I left that review. And then I felt really bad later on. I was like, when I did discover, okay, like when you put on, you know, like podcast reviews, like you, you're actually trying to help promote <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> and uh, so I felt a little bad about that, but I think um, maybe I'll have a different review after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's what, that's what we like to hear. We like to hear about the, we like, we're all about the nepotism, and, uh, the favors. Um, Matt isn't here with us at the moment, uh, but he might jump in. You never know. You know, Matt, Matt, Matt is a free spirit, free spirited Matt, as I like to call him. Yeah, um, that, that, that surprise Matt. I don't know what else we could call so him. So he, he might, he might, uh, pop, pop in, pop, pop ins. pop, pop in, poppins. Mary Poppins. Um, I, I watched, I watched a movie last night, guys. That's and good. It's, it's called uh, Saving Mr. Banks, and it's a very okay movie. Um, is this um, a, is this that is this an evangelical movie about uh, how Mr. Banks came to the saving grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? No, but it was directed by somebody who who probably would make that movie. Okay, uh, John Lee Hancock, a director that I'm actually kind of fascinated with, uh, comes from that area of the country. Um, but we'll talk about some other time. What do you uh, what, what, what do you mean by that area of the country, John Post? I, I'm just saying he's he's uh, I've I've I I know some things. I've met his family, uh, and they hail from a very small town in Texas. And uh, okay, they have you know yeah. I'm just saying why am I even saying coy? He's evangelical, of course he is. He's He's like the only evangelical filmmaker out there making stuff. <laughs> I just, you know, I'm just being mindful of the fact that you you live in one of those places of the country. Michael here is from one of those places in the country, and that's true. I'm just trying to, I'm just calling out your elitism. Yeah, I don't know why I'm being privilege. coy. Like we we talk pretty openly about evangelicals, but yeah, um, whatever. But anyway, I'm getting I'm getting on to tangent. We'll talk about Johnny Hancock some other time because that is a fascinating topic. Uh, but he made a movie called Saving Mr. Banks, which is about. Um, uh, Disney is sort of trying to acquire the rights from P.L. Travers to make Mary Poppins back in the 60s. It's a very okay movie. I enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, but I, I was interested in it because a lot of, there are a lot of themes on like um, adaptation and collaboration and also like authorial uh, ownership. And P.L. Travers was sort of famous for like, giving Disney like a really hard time. Like he tried getting the rights to that book for like 20 years to make that movie, but she was very protective of it. Um, and then when they finally did start collaborating, she was just like a pain because she was very like, she wanted to oversee every little thing. 
Um, she did, she got her way sometimes, not all the time, but in the end, still a pretty good movie. She did not like it that much. <laughs> um, but uh, it's an interesting story. It's a fun story. It's on Netflix if you want to check it out, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, but it sort of inspired the, this topic that I want to talk about today, which is who do stories belong to? And um, that movie in particular touched me because the movie sort of dives into um, the life of P.L. Travers when she was a little girl and she was being, uh, uh, she was raised on a farm in Australia. And her father was like a alcoholic, had horrible, uh, horrible health problems. And it was like tearing their family apart. And Mary Poppins was definitely something she created to kind of save her. Uh, from what was happening. And so, of course, she's very protective of it. And it, it's interesting kind of thinking about that now as we're sort of in this time where, you know, fandom is this like enormous, um, it's like this enormous like entity now. And people are very protective of what they love and sometimes don't even like kind of take into account like, how authors feel about their own stories and they get angry. And we've talked about that. We've talked about fan ownership and that sort of like toxicity associated with that and stuff. Um, but I thought that was interesting. And so we're gonna talk about uh, who do stories belong to. Um, but before we start, Chuck, uh, should I just like, do you want me just to generally ask you guys like what you think about who do stories belong to or do we, should we just kind of like dance around a little bit, like kind of explore some other concepts? Well, how do you want to? Thank you. We should ask our, what's our guests thinking? I, I think that the best uh, conversations happen when we dance. So let's <laughs> dance. Well, Jesus is dancing in the streets. <laughs> That's right. <He> is. <laughs> we, just to explain that joke, we, uh, we just came from a, uh, we, so what we've been doing here at St. Andrew's School and why Michael is with me here in Florida is um, we are doing um, a 24 hour, 70, well, 24 hour a day, 72 hour total read through of the Bible. We just finished this. There he is. Matthew. Hey, um, I made it. And, uh, and part of the finishing of the reading of the entire Bible was we had a praise band come and do music for us. And one of the songs they sang involves talking about Jesus dancing in the streets. And so I feel like I would yeah. quote it. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And, and because we just finished reading the Bible, it, 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 this, I think we'll have some thoughts on authorship regarding the Bible. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's that definitely, I want to get into that. Yeah. That's something interesting. And that's, hasn't, that's not really explored. And when I look up this kind of stuff. Uh, Matt has just joined us. Jet Matt, just to catch you up, we just, we literally just got started. <laughs> Yay. I kind of just did a bit of introduction talking about uh, the movie Saving Mr. Banks and why it inspired me to kind of like pursue uh, asking the question, um, who do stories belong to? And why Mary Poppins was so important to her author. Um, well, listen, I, I am, as a published author, Okay. Um, I, I, uh, I have two published authors here. That's yeah. right. Two yeah. published authors. Um, I, I feel like I'm an authority uh, on this topic, well, and maybe okay. I should start. Uh, and then yeah. Matt can also weigh in because he actually has a book. <laughs> yes. Well, we can, I, I, mean, I well, can weigh in. I can weigh in on death of the art when you <laughs> write something and it, nobody reads it and it doesn't go anywhere. So I can <laughs> I can weigh in that way. So I have a whole perspective. And hello to our guest, by the way. Hi, Matt. It is, it's good it to is. meet you. I've been a longtime listener of the podcast, and I'm Michael Funston. I'm Father Funston. Yes, I know. I, I am yeah. super excited to actually get to meet you face-to-face yeah. -face over the computer, but face-to-face -face finally. Yeah. So we, um, we, we already had the awkward talk about a review, so it's... <laughs> okay. Oh, 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 good, good. <laughs> I'm glad we covered that. Um, and and we, we took it to heart, and we, we are trying. <laughs> I think you're doing an excellent job. I've listened to more episodes since then, and it's it's getting it's it's a good podcast. That's I'm what we very, like to hear. I feel very honored to be here. Well, if you if you want to just talk about that for the rest of the podcast, <laughs> yes, we'll just talk about how amazing we are. Go ahead, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, so, uh, well, I have two authors here. I, I want to ask. I want to ask you guys. Um, do you think your work? belongs to you or do you think that when you when you write something and release it out into the wild is it does it belong to somebody else is it for for whoever to do whatever they want with it or well here well i'll say i had i had an interesting experience I, I one of the things i've been kind of tinkering away with in the background um is um 
it's, I've, I've, I'm working, I'm working on a novel. You can, nice. You know, you say that and it always happens. Um, <laughs> so I've been, I've been kicking around this idea for a novel for a while. I mean, since college and I kind of started working on it a few years ago and um, it was, I had this moment where, so JP, Matt and I all had the same creative writing teacher in college. His name was David Athey and he's an awesome, awesome man. And one of the things I remember him talking to me about is how sometimes stories kind of come out of you and then they sort of, you, when you, you know you're really writing when your characters sort of take on a life of their own while you're writing them. And I had that moment while I was writing, working on my novel, I had a moment where it was just sort of like, oh yeah, this is what's happening. Like this character is gonna do this. And it was just sort of like, I didn't plan it. It just sort of spontaneously came out. And I mentioned that because I think there's some truth to the idea that that this stuff does have a life apart from the person who writes it, that you sort of put it out there and you sort of want to, and for me, it's kind of interesting to see where it goes. And so it does have, it does have a life of its own. It's not just something that, you know, like I'm carefully crafting this thing to be exactly what I want it to be. And I expect you to read it exactly as I want you to read it. Because if a character that I'm writing can surprise me, then there's things in it that can surprise anyone who reads it and say, hey, I, I recognize X, Y, and Z in your story. And to me, that's cool. Like, oh, I didn't intend that, but that's awesome that you made that connection. And mm -hmm. so the idea that, that, it has, um, that it has this life apart from the author, I'm totally on board with. And I think it's, I think it's, a, it's the only right and healthy way to, to do, at least with creative writing, I think that that's how that, that works. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, I think I'm, I'm not a published author, um, but and I, I've, I've created characters and stuff. And I, I usually try to, I know that a lot of people sort of look at their writing as like, um, you know, what would this character do instead of like putting a lot of intent to in what they do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that sort of, I think a lot of people make the assumption that a lot of stories are like kind of created like in a vacuum. Like there, there isn't like a whole lot of intent. And I, but I, don't, I don't know. I think that there's, what am I trying to get at Chuck? I'm trying to tell you that uh, I think in like very small situations, like character decisions and whatnot, I think that's, that's, that's true. But I don't think you can like totally take away like, you know, everything that makes up who you are that has influenced what you've made. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think right, and, that, and I think what we get to this in this conversation is where we start finding the limits, right, to this. I know that's something we're going to get into in a little bit more, but um, because it it, it kind of makes me think about something I read back in my deeply evangelical days. I was at Long's Christian Bookstore in Edgewater, Florida, and I was reading some book, and it was I don't remember it was on the shelf. I flipped through it, and it was sort of disparaging the Roman Catholic Church. Because, you know, those were the days. Yeah. And, uh, and it said something about how like, the idea of open interpretation in the Catholic Church regarding the Bible. And it said something, and it used uh, the story of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, which is one of your favorite stories, um, where, the, where Jesus responds to this woman and says, truly, I tell you, the day is coming where no one will worship in the temple or on this mountain. Um, and they said, According to the Catholic Church, what that's saying is that, you know, it's just as valid to be able to say, like, oh, a nuclear bomb is going to come and blow up the mountain someday. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And it was and, and they were sort of like, but no, what, he, what Jesus is really talking about is a spiritual thing, blah, 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 blah. And I, I remember reading that at the time being like, yeah, OK, that makes sense. But I thought about it more and more. I was like, well, no, I, I mean, other than like somebody who's being really intentionally like, I don't know, obstinate or just ridiculous about reading the Bible or interpreting it would go to that, go to that length. I think that most people would, there would be some sort of equilibrium, some kind of interpretation in between those sorts of things, right? Yeah. The, the idea that, that open interpretation means it goes to this extreme automatically is a, is a ridiculous thing. Um, but that's where some of the conversation we can have, I guess, is because we've seen where it goes to ridiculous places. But I think that just naturally, there's some degree of restraint that you have to take into consideration, like the context in which something is written. You do have to consider a little bit like the limitations and point of view of the author who wrote it. But that doesn't mean that like I read a story and I say, well, here's what I think it's about. Well, going back to our matrix conversation, mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea that 
the Matrix could have been the Matrix could have been made as a movie that was not intentionally about the journey of transitioning, right? right? Um, as, as a trans story, it might not have been intentionally that, but looking back on it now and knowing the Wachowski sisters situation, we can say like, oh, whoa, it's totally there in the story. Yeah, absolutely. And so it kind of becomes part of the story and the way you interpret it. And it's still connected to the author, but it might not have been intentional from the author. And so there's some le level of validation. But if you're going to say that The Matrix is actually a story about how me, Charles Browning, is trapped in a machine world, and this is somebody trying to communicate with me that I should free myself from my machine world, and that means I need to take a bunch of, like, Dayquil in order to free my mind, that, like, that's, I think that's that's just kind of right out there. Like, most people would say that that's kind of... Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think I think that's... Totally a stupid concept because it's obviously about me and how I need to get out of the machine world. So you can't say that. That's... My fedora is perfectly okay. And the it's patriarchy a, I, is fine. Excuse me. Excuse me, John Post. It is, it is a trilby. <laughs> trilby. Not a fedora. Of course. Milady, apologies. <laughs> um, Michael, do you do... <laughs> nice. Um, Michael, do you do any kind of writing? Like, do you do anything like, uh, are you, I do are you, not. No? I'm not very creative. I, I like to write thank you notes. So that's, I mean, there's some authorial intent to that. <laughs> nice. We could talk about death of the author and, uh, thank you notes and greeting cards. <laughs> um, but well, do you, are you like a big reader? Do you, do you read yeah. a lot? Do you, yeah. Yeah. I read how, a lot. So how do you feel about like um, the idea of like authorial intent and kind of taking away sort of like things like that? Like what, what Chuck has sort of been talking about. How do you, how do you feel about all this? Yeah, I, I think that I have, um, I think where I come at it is that like, I want to know what the author was intending. Yeah. Whereas I've heard so many authors um, that have been interviewed about their stories say something like, you know, I put this out here and you know, this is the story that I've written and I want you to experience it however you want to experience it and not necessarily have an, a direct line intention. And that infuriates me because I want to know exactly what I'm supposed to get out of their reading. And I think that that's why I was a really good uh, student in high school and like in all my English classes, because English teachers teach a lot of times teach that way where, you know, like this is what you're supposed to, this is what I got out of this book. And this is what the state is telling me that I need you to get out of this book. <laughs> um, and so I come from that background, but as I've gotten older and, you know, listen to um, interview interviews with authors that I like mostly with children's books. Um, but they say, you know, um, I I don't like that question as an author of what I intended uh, with with this book um, or with this story. I um, I want to know what you got out of it. I want to know what your experience is from that story. And so um, and so that's where kind of where I'm at with with this question of authorship and wanting to respect the author, but also understanding that the author really respects my experience of their of their storytelling right yeah i think there is sort of like a, a, a kind of like a fine line like you don't want to completely get rid of the author you don't want to kill the author like all these uh, post-structuralists did in france uh you want to you want his voice to be a part of the conversation um and you know i think of like like the first thing i always think about i think about quentin tarantino um especially pulp fiction because there's a there's that briefcase, right? And like there's like a billion theories on. I'm bringing this up, and Matt's getting mad because he hates the briefcase. Um, <laughs> there's like a billion theories on like what's on the briefcase, and everyone asks Quentin, you know, what's in the briefcase? He's like, I don't want to tell people. He's the like, I have <laughs> the tesseract, uh, except the tesseract <laughs> is blue, and that is definitely an orange glow, my friend. Uh, anyway, that's just, that's just color hue. That was an editing choice. <laughs> um, and but he has specifically said he's like, I have my idea of what's in the briefcase, um, and I don't want that to sort of get in the way of like what other people's uh, how how it's working with other people's imagination. Yeah, it makes me think of something James Cameron said not too long ago. He was he gets so fed up with people talking about the door in Titanic. You know, why couldn't Leo get on the door oh. with Rose? 
And he got so fed up with it and he said, I'll tell you why. It's just because on page like 300, whatever of the script, it says, it says Jack dies. <laughs> That's why exactly. he couldn't get on the door. <clears throat> That's funny. Uh, Matt, what do you think is in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction? I already told it's a test rack. And it just, <laughs> took him, it just took Samuel L. Jackson a long time to finally get a hold of it and show it to the world. But he's finally got it. He's finally yeah, he's, got it. Now yeah. we get to see now we get to see him run around with it in a lunchbox. <laughs> now we're getting into fan theory. Uh, um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's in there. What's in there? Uh, it is a um, some kind of like orange fluorescent light that was uh, stuck in there. So when they opened it, it glowed. Oh, you're a horrible person. With a, with a with a strip of aluminum foil behind it so they can reflect it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I continue to talk with you two. <laughs> Well, that's why, Matt. Yes, it's true because people listen to me when I talk to them. It is my curse. It is my gift. Um, yes, it is true. Nobody listens, but when I talk to these two, people listen. I don't know why. Well, I mean, Matt and I have, have talked about this a lot, and it's kind of why I bring out the Pulp Fiction briefcase because we've argued about the Pulp Fiction briefcase. I'm trying to explain to him what he's saying, and Matt, your argument is always, no, he's full of crap. I hate him. Yeah. Just tell us what's in the briefcase. Just what's in the dumb briefcase. <laughs> I I argue he doesn't know what's in the briefcase. He just was like, oh, let's have a briefcase that glows and nobody will know what's in it. So they're like, what's in it? I don't know. It's a glowing briefcase. Like, <laughs> And now it's become a bigger thing and he has to have all these ideas about it. Oh, I know. I know. I know. I know. It's, it's neon lettering that says MacGuffin. <laughs> okay. That's probably it. I don't know. Just getting, just getting better and better. Um, well, I'm, I'm asking you this, Matt, because so, I, Matt, I wish, how, uh, how do you feel about death of the author? What's your viewpoint on it? I'm glad you asked, JP. Well, well, we haven't really specifically got into death of the author. I have some, I have some things I want to, I want to read first before we get into that. But I do want to know, like, just sort of your general views. My general views on oh, death of the author. Yeah, sure. Um, or on what? On what? On the briefcase? What do you on want? Author, no, not the authorship. Just authorship. Authorship intent. Authorial intent. On authorship and who does it belong to once you write it? Yeah, is that it? Yeah, you're the you're the moderator here, man. Yeah, moderate. I know. I know. I'm <laughs> moderating my heart out. Over here. Well, my introduction to this topic was in a little class in college called um, Tolkien, and it was with Father Chuck. And I wrote a paper where I spent way too much time researching this paper. I dove into it like you wouldn't believe about when do I believe that Gollum crossed the point of redemption and when he no longer could turn back. Like he, he crossed the line and that was it. He was no longer a character that could be redeemed. And I had a moment that I was like, this is it. This has got to be, this is where I believe it happened. And I started researching it and I used all these different books and all these different um, story references from the, the Lord of the Rings, the whole, the trilogy. And then I found this letter written by Tolkien. And in the letter, Tolkien says, I believe that this is the moment when he crossed the point of redemption. So I quoted that in the paper and I was dropped a letter grade because I am not allowed to use the author to comment on what the story means. Um, so, so, so I was infuriated. Up. So I was infuriated at introduction one to this concept of who does the story belong to, the author or the audience. Um, and my viewpoint is both. Um, I think that author's intent is important. And I believe that if you read a book through the lens of the author's intent, you can gain all sorts of insight into the story, the meaning. Um, but I also believe that when you write and create, like Father Chuck is saying, um, it kind of takes, it does take on a life of its own because you are writing, if you're doing it honestly, you are writing from a place where there are influences in your life. There are subconscious thoughts that you have that you don't even realize you're putting on paper. So for other people to read it and grab all sorts of things from it that you didn't quote unquote intend to write makes total sense to me. Um, so I, I, I think both are valid and both are important. My problem is when people go one way or the other and say it has to be this. Like, no, the story can't mean that because the author this is what it's about. It's like, well, okay, so that's what he meant it to mean, but this is what I get from it and why. And that's why I love 
<clears throat> loved literature growing up because the whole point is to is to talk about what you got from it and in an educated way show how you got there why you got there and lead other people to see things in a in a different in a different viewpoint like it's like a painting i can paint a sad face and put it up on my wall and somebody else could look at it and find joy in that painting and be like i see hope despite the fact that in that moment there's sadness and i'm like well i was just really depressed that day through somebody who's like crying and they're like yeah but i see so much hope in the painting um it's i think it's important to know both and to be open to discussing both and I also am a, am a literary, literary nerd who loves to hear, no, I want to hear why you wrote this. Tell me why. I will argue with you if I want to. I will argue with the author himself and be like, that's not what it means. But I want to hear what you, what you wrote it for, because that does matter to me. And also shines light into why, to me, it opens a whole nother level when I read a book and I'm like, wow, I got... I got a message about how to live your life meaningfully out of that book. And then you hear the author say, I was just writing a story about my dog and all it is is about how dogs make everything better. And I'm like, okay, but now that makes even more sense because now I'm connecting the fact that it's my dog growing up from childhood and how much joy that brings and how every moment in life means something when it was there. And, you know, it just adds another layer to it, which when we get to the other part of the discussion is why I love the Bible conversation too because the deeper you dive into it the more you understand about author context when it was written what their purpose for writing it was the more the message you got from it just comes to life and the more you have to the more angles you have to talk about it i can say oh here's why i feel that way and come at it from a totally different way so that's my answer both wow that's 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 great <laughs> Um, I'm and gonna, that's, in, that's the end, guys. I'll see you later. Um. <laughs> no, I think that kind of perfectly sort of encapsulates like, like kind of what we're all trying to say, that it is sort of like a, almost kind of like a push and pull. Like it, it's, 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 it's not really like a, a matter of ownership. It's more of a matter. It's, it's a conversation. And it's like, are two people having the conversation or is this one person having a conversation? Um, so I think that's interesting. Um, to kind of switch gears a little, I kind of want to sort of actually define death of the author instead of having it be like this sort of nebulous thing. Yes, I actually would appreciate um, that. So thank okay, you. Okay, <laughs> cool. So I have, However, I have... your definition doesn't mean anything to me. We've already discussed this, but carry on anyway. Go ahead. All right, I have notes and I'm going to read them. Um, so death of the author uh, is a, uh, it's actually a, an essay published by French literary critic and theorist Roland Barthes in 1967. Um, so just to kind of shine a light of what it was like in the 1960s in French academia, um, around this time, they were beginning to embrace uh, what was called post-structuralist methodology. And this is where people like Bart, Foucault, and uh, Derrida, you know, postmodern thinkers, were starting to uh, become, started to come into their own. Um, so structuralism was a methodology that saw facets of human culture as intrinsically related to a broader overarching system or structure. And post-structuralism, post-structuralism questioned the more binary relationship of structuralism, that you couldn't make X assumption about X person or social group or work of art just because that person or whatever came from a certain place, experienced a certain thing or spoke a certain language. Um, in some, Death of the Author is defined as readers should pull away from the tenet of traditional literary criticism that focused on authorial intent and instead adopt a more text-oriented approach that focused on the interaction between the reader and the text, not between the reader and the author. Uh, Bart said that writing is, writing is that neutral, composite, oblique space where our subject slips away. The negative where all identity is lost, starting with the very identity of the body writing. And then um, his contemporary, contemporary uh, Foucault, took it a little bit further, uh, he believed that, uh, that the author was an ideological figure that people assigned meaning to, uh, meaning to the author's text just by virtue of, of who is saying it, rather than meaning inherent in the text. He said, we must locate the space left empty by the author's disappearance. Follow the distribution of gaps and breaches and watch for openings this disappearance uncovers. 
Is that so? That's 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 it, the author. <laughs> I love I love awkward silences. On the podcast. <laughs> my favorite. Tell I love off. when JP finishes and it's just like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Fill, filling in the, filling in those gaps where the author yeah. has disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so um, well, let's 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 talk about now that we've sort of defined death of Elisha. I want to get into what our, our biblical scholars think and how if if that can be sort of applied to the authorship of the Bible. Okay, all I was okay. going to say is, I, I as you were talking about it, it just it brought back you know these are French the, the idea that these were French thinkers. I don't think is any coincidence because you know French philosophy has you know it's it's part of this great trajectory of you know continental thinking and stuff. Um, that uh, maybe go back to our John Calvin episode. And, you know, Calvin was the one who was also a French thinker who, um, I mean, he was Swiss, but, you know, it was continental philosophy. And I feel like he had some French, he was living in France. Anyway, whatever, I could be wrong. An angry Calvinist will correct me. Um, <laughs> but is the, 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 he was the one, and as we talked in the Calvin episode, he was the one who introduced the idea that the Bible holds authority apart from the church. And to me, that seems like that's the beginning of, of, a, of a thought pattern that's going to that's going to continue through the post-structuralist way of thinking. The idea that like a text exists in and of itself, of sorts, right? The you know the author, I guess, sort of brings it out there, but then the author has to back away. It's right. out, but it's there, and so the author has you know. So the idea that the Bible, that the text of the Bible exists by itself is is an idea that um that that calvin and the and the and the and the european reformers um the radical reformation brought to the brought to the fore and and so um that's such an interesting innovation to me because prior to that it was understood that the bible is the product of the church it belongs to the church it's embodied in the church it's read by the church and so it was ultimately interpreted by the church. The, arg the argument being, we wrote the thing, therefore we can interpret it. And the Reformation gave us some good questions and thinking around this and allowed us to change to uh, to where we are in a lot of our different um, Christian thinking now in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Christianity at large, I think um, does it best because I'm biased and I think Michael's biased too, um, in that you know we, we strike a balance between these things. But that ultimately the text is embodied in the community of faith and that we are free to interpret it because it belongs to us. And that the idea of, and, and, and the counterpoint to that is what we see in the evangelical, more evangelical world that gives a lot of weight to the author of the Bible. And they make the claim that the Bible is written by God. Right. And like, Michael, you were talking about that in our chapel service the other day. Say what you were saying then about like how you would, you would know people who believe the Bible was written a certain, like, I like the way you phrased that in chapel the other day. Do you remember? Uh, maybe. I I grew up in uh, middle America in Kansas, and I had a lot of uh, friends that were going to non-denominational, most likely evangelical churches. And, um, and I realized um, that like th when they would quote scripture to me that I didn't, I felt like I wasn't a good Christian because I didn't know a lot of what they were saying. And they were saying it as if this is what God says, not this is what the Bible says, but this is what God says. And it's in the Bible. Um, and I, I was never, um, I, I'm grew up in the Episcopal church. And so um, my background was, I mean, we did read Bible stories and, you know, read, read scripture every week in, in church, but it was never, that wasn't my background. That wasn't my understanding that it was, that the Bible was the direct word of God. Um, that, and I see, I see the Bible as being inspired by God um, and that people had these things happen to them um, their stories around their relationship with God, and they felt like it was important for them to write it down, and that those stories carried through because they were important to their relationship um, with God and because of the love of God. So, yeah, because you were the, the the image that you gave to the students was the idea that like God sort of whispering in the ear of Matthew, and is like, oh, that wasn't me. That was Rev. Uh, but that was you said that. No. No. Oh. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> but like this idea that the Bible was, because the way I've always thought about it, so like the Bible, it's like the 
it was like they're sort of like using like the Ouija crystal, you know, like God's moving oh. the thing to like to the words that they're supposed to be saying. And so <laughs> the idea of scripture being inspired is the idea that it's like, you know, it wasn't like Matthew's perspective, you know, coming out in this and his cultural deal. It was, no, I thought that was use of that. No. no. Okay. Well, never mind. But hey, that was good. That was, that was great what you said. So, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> That's great. Um, what about you, Matt? What do you, what do you think? How do you, do you think this can be applied scripturally? Uh, here it comes. Here it comes. Here, here it comes what? Now there's so much pressure. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do anymore. Everybody's everybody's staring at me. I, feel, I, yeah, what I love about, in my opinion, the power of scripture is, and you pick up the Bible. If you If you were just some guy who was, born walking around some person walking around on earth you're like oh hey what's this book and you pick it up and read it from one cover to the other i think that you would get a powerful message of love grace redemption unity um restoration and reconciliation um and you would need no better understanding of who wrote this where did it come from what time was this written to get that message but then if you dive into it, kind of like I was saying before, and you go to the human authors of the Bible and when they wrote it and what was going on when they wrote it and how did they feel when they were writing this and what was going through their head. Um, like Paul, when he's writing that it would be for me to live as Christ and to die would be gain because at the point he's like, it would be much more better is how it's basically translated. It's awful English from a guy who writes incredible passages that flow and are poetic. Then like, it would be much more better if I just died. Um, I think, I think personally it shows his struggle with a form of like a depression, a hopelessness. And he's writing this in scripture saying, in spite of that, I know that for me to live is Christ. Die would be gain, but I'm here for a reason, and I'm holding on with you for it. So the more you dive into the authors, the more you study it, the more you're like, when was this written? Why was this written? Where were they when they wrote it? Who were they talking to exactly? The more you see that same exact message of love, joy, reconciliation that the person who just walked up and picked it up read it got. Um, you just have more powerful ways to look at it, <clears throat> other angles to come from. And I believe that... I was grown up with kind of that understanding, like Father Chuck said, I was grown up with this understanding that the guy like sat down at the paper and then he just like blacked out and his hand moved and he was doing like that, what is that, that auto auto writing thing, like uh, yeah, auto, automatic and, writing and yeah, automatic writing. And God is like writing the Bible through him onto the paper. Um, and it's, then I, sorry, I'm just thinking, it's sort of that image. Um, it's sort of that image that that's out there of like, the doctor he's doing like open heart surgery but jesus's hands yeah like holding, his hands. holding it yeah um but instead what i've what i've grown to understand in my study and my time word and my my spiritual walk is these are people whose lives were totally poured into and invested in understanding God's will for life, what they're supposed to be doing here on earth, how we're supposed to be interacting as people. And that is flowing through them in a way that is just profound and incredible, that God is inspiring them in the same way that I said, when I sit down and write a story, there's so many influences in my life I don't even realize are coming out of the page because it kind of takes on a life of its own. I kind of picture that being how the Bible worked is they sat down and they don't even quite understand the level at which it was flowing through them as they're writing this, like the, the clarity they had as they're writing, but it's just people writing it. The, the inspiration of God is weaving together these X number of authors over a crazy amount of years. I'm blanking out on my studying here, uh, Father Chuck, on how many authors over how many years the book was written. And yet, from beginning to end, the way it flows together, the way the message progresses through scripture, the way that it continually backs itself up and doesn't wipe out like passages written previously that you get to the next one. You're like, okay, so Leviticus means nothing because now we have the New Testament. It's like, no, it works together in a way that there is a divine inspiration. There's a reason that these are the books that have carried on through the 
generations, through church councils, through debate, through argument, through wars that were fought over them. And yet these books are the ones that have been held through all that. And I think that's where the, the inspiration of God comes through. But to throw the author out and say that Paul's opinion doesn't mean anything, that like what Paul's writing when he wrote it doesn't mean anything. It, it's just even with scripture, that doesn't work because you got to understand a guy sitting in jail writing to a church that's sending him money. If you're going to understand the, the book of Philippians, you got to understand the hopelessness of sitting there in a prison. If you're really going to get the impact to how powerful the message is. Um, but that's, that's what I think. That's my opinion, but no, I wrote it. So now, now it's recorded, it's out there and my, my thoughts mean nothing. So you decide. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to that, I mean, it's like one of the things that I, that I often, like, I have a couple of my little pet theories about some of the books of the Bible. I was Matt talking about like the, the, all the different authors, um, of the Bible and some of which we don't even know, like John's gospel. We don't know. Um, it was probably the product of a, of a community of, of people. It could have been 20 authors. We, do, we just don't know, um, um, you know, redactors and collaborators. But I think of um, like the book of Hebrews, um, which is um, a sermon. It's in the Bible. And I love that Rob Bell um, has a tendency to refer to the author using the female, using feminine language. He just has this little pet theory that a woman wrote um hebrews mm -hmm. i think it's sort of fun for him to do that because we don't know who wrote hebrews so why not um but the my little pet theory about the book of hebrews is that it was a sermon delivered on the occasion of the destruction of the temple and of, of the of the jerusalem of the temple in jerusalem um I, I i've read nothing to back this up but it's just this idea that's come to me over the years that i've read it over and over and to have that idea in the back of my mind to see where basically this basically if Jews who, if Jewish Christians who still saw their faith connected to the temple are now saying, what do we do now? This writer is now sitting in a situation where like we have a temple that's actually in the heavens. It's not here on earth. It connects to the things that are happening in the heavens. And this, it just seems to be this, that's part of the project of it. And whether or not that's true or not is, you know, is, is obviously up for debate. Um, but it's, to me, it's a, it's a, it's, it's an interesting thing historical context that it came out of if, if there's all this stuff coming around it you know the the mindset of the person who wrote it it doesn't it doesn't mean suddenly that oh we find out that like if i find out tomorrow that you know basically like the biblical version of like bubba smith wrote it on like a roll of toilet paper after like taking some mescaline or something <laughs> like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna suddenly be like oh well the bible's the bible's done now it's you know it's it's because again, the way these stories have been kind of captured and enshrined in the community of faith, and we consider the wider the wider context and implications and what they mean for us, it just takes on um, this this enrichment that puts us in this place. Like what Matt was saying in the beginning, that it's sort of a dynamic, a dance between the um, between the author and the audience, the reader and the writer, um, and that that's sort of where where it exists is there. Right. Yeah, I, and. and I, I think a lot about like, um, this is sort of causing me to think about the book of Revelation mm. and how, um, so how, like, if you just like, you know, I come from an evangelical background and so evangelicals have this entire like narrative just totally like planned out as if they, they've totally literally interpreted the book of Revelation. They know it backwards or forwards. It's left behind, right? It's, it's, the, it's yesterday. <laughs> it's left behind. It's thief of the night. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, it, it, when you sort of kind of apply it, like thinking about John, uh, this disciple of Jesus, who's growing up in this really, um, oppressive time, it starts to kind of take a different sort of like meaning. And it, it's interesting because, you know, I, I didn't say this when we talked about when we saw it, when we watched the thief in the night, but kind of watching it now under different sort of like different beliefs I have now about like, you know, against, you know, anti-authorianism and stuff, uh, anti-authoritarianism and things like that. It kind of, even I, I just kind of took on a different meaning. I'm like, you could, this could be about like illegal immigrants, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I feel like the, I, I don't know if death of the author is necessarily responsible. Um, but I do kind of think that's those sort of post-structuralist thinkings have have kind of worked its way into our modern world. And I think that if, if you just sort of like 
spent more time, you know, studying the context in which like something like Revelation was written by who it was, it was or at least it was claimed to be written by. Um, it would just kind of derive a whole new meaning and not just like this, mm -hmm. not this, you know, you know, fantasy, this, this like Lord of the Rings style, heavy metal side of the van. <laughs> I, know, I would, I, I would argue that any depth that you find in A Thief in the Night did not come from the author. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's just my argument. Well, I mean, I mean, and that, that's just one of those things, right? Where it's like, that, that, that I found kind of fascinating as I was watching that movie. I'm like, this, I'm, if I if I were if you were just to show this to me as someone who wasn't raised evangelical or even like a Christian, I'd be like, oh well, like they 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 understand that dictators are bad, like so well, <laughs> but they they had this weird this weird view of it though, like oh wow, they really don't like the UN, but they think they're oppressed. I don't that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly that too, <laughs> and they got one van. I was gonna mention something that I was thinking about. Um, as you guys have been talking and thinking about like, if we just look at um, the scriptures um, standing alone, and I'm wondering if like, when they first were written and they were first, um, I guess, you know, not everybody had access to reading them. Um, it was the people in the temple and who were reading them. Um, but like, they are in the context of that or know where the, con they would have known um, why you know different books were written certain ways um, because they would have been at temple and talking about it um, each week and so and i feel like if if we try to do that today without any of that context we lose so much i mean one of the reasons why the story of the uh, woman the samaritan woman at the well is my favorite story is because i know a lot about the context of why that story is so powerful, the time of day, why she was there alone, why it was crazy that um, Jesus was talking to a woman, why it was crazy that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan, like all of these things that if you're just reading that story as is, doesn't, I wouldn't know any of that stuff. And so I just think about, um, it, I wonder if like not having any, not thinking about the author at all back when those scriptures were written, if that was possible then, but it, it's just not, it's impossible now to get any meaning or understanding or um, goodness, I guess, from, from uh, reading a text without any of that background. Yeah, the, uh, there, I mean, post-structuralism, as you mentioned, you, as you mentioned Derrida, Derrida um, is a, um, is, you know, big, big figure in the post, in postmodern philosophy and thinking. And one of the schools of theology that I've been really in, influenced by um, is called radical orthodoxy, which is in response to postmodern um, postmodernism. And they make the argument that postmodernism is just modernism continued, and that um, that what their enterprise is 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 more um, is more criti is more critical of, of the modernist enterprise. And it's a whole big thing. Anyway, um, um, one of the guys who writes, one of the guys who writes in, in that, in somewhat in that school is a, um, is a, is a gay Roman Catholic theologian named Gerard Laughlin. And I love his work very, very much. Um, his first book is called Telling God's Story and it came out in the nineties. And um, in it, he addresses um, one of, uh, one of the characters in the Episcopal church is a bishop by the name of John Shelby Spong, who is like sort of a notorious, um, heretic um i don't know what your mileage on spong is but he's a heretic no. um and uh he he developed like what he calls like a non-theistic christianity and it's just this whole thing anyway um he he, he has a spong has a tendency to write and say things that were inflammatory for the sake of inflammation you know like and he was doing it i think to spark conversation and thought i think he had a little bit deeper enterprise than a lot of people give him credit for but um laughlin responds to him because one of the things that one of the more notorious things that spong did is he talked about how he made the claim that Mar that Jesus's mother Mary was raped by a Roman soldier, probably named Gabriel, and that that's how Jesus came about, and that the church sort of you know had to make the story look nice. And Spong is trying to what he's trying to do when he says this is to, is to try to emphasize the brutality of the world in which Jesus comes into, and he basically claimed like this is the only way it makes any sense. You know, women, basically women are the victims of violence and blah, 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 blah. Well, Laughlin comes back on this and says, you know, um, he, very in a very sort of cheeky academic 
uh, uh, um, um, innuendo says, um, Spawn would insert a man where, um, where the Bible would not have one. Um, and he says, you know, he has these, you know, he, he has all these stories where they, well, like Mary has to have a man. Her identity has to have a man. He says, really, the story is presented in the Bible by itself is a feminist story because Mary, um, Mary makes these decisions completely without any input from a man in her life. An angel appears to her and says, this is what God wants to do. Mary doesn't talk to her dad. Mary doesn't go and consult with Joseph. She doesn't do anything on the spot. She says, be it unto me according to thy word. She says, let it happen. Let it be. Let it be. Um, you know, she does this of her own agency and identity. And so when we have these, you know, so this idea of this sort of, you know, postmodernist, post-structuralist attempt of trying to tweak the story in such a way that it takes on this new meaning. We sometimes do violence to the text and miss out some of the really rich meanings. I remember when I read that for the first time, it blew my mind. We changed my perspective on, on the Blessed Virgin Mary and the idea of, of how she is, because she's so often used as, as, as sort of like an anti-feminist icon because of the idea of purity and all this kind of stuff. But the idea that she is in fact, you know, a very fleshed out woman in the Bible, which is very rare in the Bible, yes, um, is an is an extremely important thing, and 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 you lose that if we don't do a careful close reading of what's presented in the text itself and what was sort of intended by the author to show about her. All right, so um, we're almost out of time, uh, so we're just going to get into some final thoughts and sort of uh, conclude, like our our how we feel about things like you know who do stories ultimately belong to and uh, how we feel about authorial intent and death of the author. And I want to start with Michael, go ahead, since you are our guest. Thank you. I I like this idea. What I've been thinking about just this whole conversation is really about that it is a relationship. Um, and that I think I think that there, um, there's a relationship between you as the reader and the text or you as the viewer and the you know, story on screen. Um, and then, but I also think that the author opens themselves up to that relationship by writing that down or by presenting that story. Um, and that's something that I've also been thinking about this whole time is thinking, trying to think of if there's any texts that I view, like I only like to look at as texts and I don't really think about the authors. And I was thinking, or in, in our culture, um, texts that are brought up, and I was thinking about the um, like our constitution and our declaration of independence. And mm. I think those are texts that are often used and misused. And um, we want to know the intentions, but at the same time, we don't want to know the intentions of the authors. Um, Some people make we, up intentions. <laughs> exactly. So um, I just, I, that was one of the things that was starting to kind of ruminate for me as we were having this conversation, um, just kind of those texts that are just so um, powerful that um, just as texts, um, without, if, if you just take away, if you don't even think about the intentions or the author or, um, anything. And so that was something that kind of just came up for me that I'm probably going to be ruminating on for a few days. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also rooted in French philosophical thought. Yeah. Con <laughs> constitutions. Okay. Okay. Uh, Chuck well, or Matt, since... Uh, well, I, I'll, I'll go next just because I'm going to comment kind of on what she was talking about, too, because I love it. Um, <laughs> but also, I want to say, first of all, um, as the first episode of The New Twilight Zone tells us, that once I give it to my audience, it is gone forever and doesn't belong to me. Um, no, but that's just my shameless plug for the first incredible episode of The New Jordan Peele Twilight Zone. You can watch Available it on YouTube on for free. YouTube for free. <laughs> um, but no, I did, I did want to say... Uh, I've had discussion several times with people and one of them actually was JP not too long ago talking about how like my view on, and I'm going to get back to the author thing, but I'm, and I'm going to make it quick, but I'm going to start here. My view on Christianity is an understanding that we follow a God who is triune in nature, that he is one God, but three gods. He is a perfect relationship in and of himself. He needs nothing and no one outside of himself because he is perfect relationship. And out of an overflow of this love and relationship, he created all things and created humanity in his image. Um, 
And because of that, we were created to have a relationship with God, with ourselves, with creation itself, and with each other. And everything in life is a desire to reclaim those relationships that are broken because of the fact that we make mistakes and we, if sin if, is what I call it, sin is the, the Christian term for it. But the fact that humanity does selfish acts, does things outside of what's best for everybody, we break these relationships and all of life is lived trying to reclaim those relationships. A relationship with our creator, with creation itself, with ourselves and with each other. And art and authorship and writing is a, another aspect of this. And I really do believe that interaction with art is a form of relationship, that the artist is presenting something, they're putting it out there, they're saying, this is something that's just inside of me that I have to get out. And then the audience has the opportunity to respond to that and say, here's what this means to me, here's how this works. Here's what it means to you and why that's important, but here's how I saw it and how I can comment on it. Um, and it's a back and forth relationship. And this view also to me adds so much meaning to everything we do. Um, what, what I choose to eat and drink, what paper product, plastic product, straw I choose to use is a outward aspect of my relationship with creation itself. How am I reclaiming my relationship with creation? How I talk and interact with people, respond to art. I told JP, don't let anybody tell you that being a movie critic isn't important because how you respond to art is an act of relationship with other people. It is meaningful, it means something, it is an opportunity to comment on something that culture is looking at and to say, I can provide insight and hope in this, or I can tear it apart and just be the jerk who's shouting into the, how horrible you are into the atmosphere. Um, everything we do is a relationship and art is just another form of relationship. I am placing something out there, asking people to interact with it. And if I'm asking them to interact with it, I also have to be willing to give it up to them. If they go completely off the deep end and go some total way I didn't even think about with it, then as the author, I need to stop and go, wow, what's in here that caused them to see that that I missed? Yeah. Because I wrote it, but something's in there I missed and read it myself and look at it again. Um, and this happened even with the book I wrote, which is not a fictional book. It's just, hey, here's my thoughts on Christianity. And yet I had somebody basically tell me I'm a heretic and that I'm going to burn in hell because of this awful thing I wrote. And I'm like, what you're saying isn't even in the book. It's not even what I wrote about, but it caused me to step back and look at what, what are they seeing that I'm missing? What did they read that offended them? In that scenario, what I found out is it's actually a total outside relationship thing that they were bringing into reading my book. But, um, but my point is it's all an opportunity to relate and we can scream and yell and fight about it, or we can talk about it and learn from each other and see where it takes us. And that's what I love about art and movies and books. Chuck. Um, I, I, first thing is I would love to just spend more time on this topic. Cause we didn't even get into like the last Jedi or, <laughs> or high or Hydra captain America and how fans freaked out over this and this feeling that they had ownership possession over these stories and how they, you know, internalize these capitalistic mechanisms to try to boycott to get the story that they wanted to be told instead of the one that, that was being told and just such a fascinating other angle of this. Um, but I will say, and I'll get a little theological. I um, um, one of my one of my sort of one of my non-gendered um, thoughts on on the Trinity, because one of the things we've been talking about in the church is how to come up like how do we talk about the Trinity in non-gendered language. And so one of the terms that I've come up with, one of the formularies I've come up with is, um, is mind, word, and utterance. Um, that um, that the, the relationship between like a mind, you know, like the, the creator being the mind, the father being the mind, the, the second person, the Trinity, the son being the word, which is, you know, originates in the mind, but the utterance is what carries it out. And when the word leaves, it takes on a life of its own. Um, and it's out there. And so it has its own independent existence, you know, so the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, uh, years, years ago, I, I, I read an interview with, um, um, oh, what is her name? Her name completely escapes me. 
Um, she did the show Girls. Why am I forgetting her name? Oh, um, yeah. um, why, why am I forgetting her name? <laughs> Is it Lena? Lena Dunham. Lena Dunham. That's it. Lena Dunham. I read a I read an interview with Lena Dunham talking about the show Girls, and she talked about how her character has tattoos on her body because of the idea of showing authorship of her body and the idea of you know that there's authorship there by by contributing to it, and. Around that time, I had been reading the book of Revelation, and when Jesus shows up, it talks about all, the, all of creation will look on, the, on him who they, whom they have pierced. So the idea that Christ carries his wounds, even, you know, I mean, after the resurrection, he shows them to Thomas. So Christ, Christ's wounds remain with him. They're part of him after, after the crucifixion and even into the, and after the resurrection and even into the ascension. Um, and then we'll see them again in the eschaton and the return. So in a bizarre way, God allowed himself to be authored by creation because those wounds exist because they were inflicted on him by, by, by us, by creatures. I'm not sure what to do with all of that, but it's an interesting thought that Christ continually maintains this a little bit to what we've been hinting around and dancing around here with the idea of the relationship between author and audience that that thing you know this this word was uttered and given to us and we did something with it but it still carries those meanings that we put on it even if those meanings were violent but then even then that violent was re that violence is reinterpreted to be about love and about transformation um Kate Sondreger, um, who is a, an Episcopal priest and um, was one of my systematic theology professors in seminary and wrote um, her dogmatic, her book on dogmatics. She talks about how language is a creature. It's something that exists in creation, therefore it's a creature, and that God commandeers all creatures for his own purposes. And so the idea that, again, like this is, it just all speaks to this rich theology and, and relationship that we have with stories and language and how God uses it and how it reflects relationship with God. And like I said, I could keep going on and on and get into a really heady space, but I just wanted to throw that out there and leave that, leave us with that. Great. Um, yeah, we're going to, we're going to have to do it again and go to that heady space because you can't drop that bomb and then be like, all right, yeah. bye guys. No talking. I know. Hey, Matt's usually the one to do it. I'm doing it today. Oh, I know. Is this what it feels like to be, I don't like it anymore. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah. And you know, all right, so I'm 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 going to answer the question: Who do stories belong to? And I don't know if you're going to like the answer or not, but it's Alan Moore. They all belong to <laughs> Alan Moore. He cast a spell on the earth, and now all stories belong to him. Sorry. Do you know Do you know about the fight between him and uh, Grant Morrison? Yeah, I know about it. Yeah, my my cousin has told oh, me about it. Their, their wizard fight. Yeah. I was reading just really quick. I was reading through the new issue of Green Lantern last night, and yeah. there's an there's a villain in it named Controller Moo, and Hold it's on. yeah. Grant Hold on Moore. a second. I, I have a dog whining outside my door. Hold on a second. Aw, bring him on. Aw, where's the puppy? Just awkward silences. This is what we're known for best, guys. Hopefully we don't hear the, the sound of like a newspaper striking something. <laughs> Stop it. Why? Why? <laughs> Be still, Cody. Oh, and that was the day of the podcast. Oh, hi, JP. Sorry. Hi. I know you're saying excellent things about me and my Alan Moore joke. Yes. Well, I was was so Grant Morrison's writing the new the new Green Lantern comic, and so the one of the villains in the new issue is called Controller Moo, yeah. and it talks about basically it's clearly an Alan Moore like <laughs> Moo like Alan Moo, it's clearly an Alan Moore reference, and mm -hmm. it's and I'm like really Grant Morrison like you guys are having your wizard fight through the text of your comic. Oh, <laughs> um, you know, the last the last joke comment thing I'm going to make is I didn't get to comment on Saving Mr. Banks, which is an incredible movie, by the way. But I will say okay, also, <laughs> I will say I also will say looking through the lens of today, I, it's it's kind of funny that we're heading into a world that if mergers and acquisitions and buyouts and all this keep happening, oh, yeah. Disney may own all stories. That's true. All <laughs> stories may belong to Disney. So, yeah. yeah. All your stories are belong to us. If yep. she had just held out and not given him Mary Poppins, Disney might not run the world today. Yeah, it's true. That's that's Ooh. where it all started. <laughs> um, so, uh, so my, my my thoughts on on the whole thing is, you know, I, I I don't. I think that I think that ultimately they do belong to their creators. I think that stories, in fictional stories, uh, any kind of text belongs to whoever created it, and I think that whoever reads or watches or whatever 
I th- I don't think that's a form of ownership. That's just a relationship. It's like you know the what I what I wrote is like my child and the audience are like their their friends. Okay, that's just kind of how I view it. Yeah. And, but does and, my but does my child belong to me? Because I agree with that thing. But does well, my child belong to me? I, I don't know. I mean, you can't. There are things about your child that you've influenced that you can't really take away, both biologically and you know just through raising them. So I, there's things that are just sort of undeniable that you are a part that that are parts of you that are part of your child that you can't take away. Be like, oh, well, we'll just ignore who your parent the was. Lawn, the lawn guy says we're so we're done. <laughs> I, anyway. hear the, I hear the leaf blowers. But, but that also kind of leads to why I don't really like Death of the Author. Because Death of the Author takes away, like I, I think of like books like Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which is this really important book about being a, a black man in America. <laughs> or uh, a movie like, um, like Spike Lee's um, Do, Do the, the Right, right thing. thing. Yeah, Do the Right Thing. Or you know, most of Spike Lee's work. Um, we need his perspective. Like we, we need those perspectives. Our society has to have those because if you take that away, you're just gonna let a bunch of white people dictate what those movies, what those movies and stories are about. Like there's not gonna be any kind of change, no, nothing radical, nothing. It's it's just, it's just kind of useless. Um, so I, no, uh, but poo poo death of the author. Whenever someone brings it up, tell them shut up. <laughs> I don't like it. Get it out of here. Um, so that that's that's sort of my ultimate thoughts on uh, right. stories and whatnot. And uh, Mary Poppins belongs only to P.L. Travers. <laughs> Does Mary Poppins the book only belong to P.L. Travers? What about the edited movie? Hey, look, you're not helping movie? us come to an end here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> ah, she really doesn't like that. hanging up. She really didn't like that. Oh gosh, I, I, I'm just trying to imagine. Like, I, did you guys see the new Mary Poppins? No. No, I can't. I didn't see Saving Mr. Banks and I haven't seen the new Mary Poppins because I love that movie. So yeah, the Mary, Mary Poppins. Poppins movie so much. So it is great. You, I mean, I think you should check out Saving Banks. I, I think okay. I, it's, it's worth checking it's on out. Netflix, kind of it's yeah, it's on Netflix. Okay. Yeah, you um, might be able to pass on the new Mary Poppins. The new Mary Poppins, oof. Mm, yeah. No. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, I think that's a kind of a great place for us to start, for us to end. Awesome. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Michael. Thank you so much for, for joining yes, us. So thank glad you to so have much you. for having me. Yes, please come back and join us again. Honored. Okay, I will. Um, yeah. yeah, if you guys are talking about something like maybe Captain Marvel or another movie that has a lead female and you don't have a female uh-huh. guest or somebody speaking to that, I would love to be that person. I think that Great. that is missing from this conversation. Oh, yeah. We'd love to do that. <laughs> and I've said my piece. Okay. <laughs> uh, thanks again. And I want to thank Father Chuck. You're, you're welcome. And Matt Wells. Mm, you're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, join us again next time and have a great week. Good journey. Good journey. Good journey. Good journey. Good journey.